Mika Hakkinen's final season in F1 wasn't particularly memorable, but one moment that stood out was the heartbreaking way he lost the 2001 Spanish Grand Prix, which he appeared to have in the bag until the very last lap. Hakkinen's dramatic breakdown summed up a day to forget for McLaren, where teammate David Coulthard's car stalled before the formation lap, leading to Ron Dennis's famous and inaccurate claim that the Scots suffered brain fade in the cockpit. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me to revisit the day Michael Schumacher limped home to victory ahead of first-time podium finisher Juan Pablo Montoya and Jacques Villeneuve claimed BAR's first F1 podium are Mark Hughes and Matt Beer. Those of you who listened to the very end of our episodes to find out what the next one is might be wondering why we're not talking about the Walrus Williams of 2004 as we promised, but I can assure you that's been shuffled back just a week so you'll hear that next time. So Mark, looking at Spain 2001 instead, a race you were at, of course, when you think back to this weekend, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It was just that moment. I was getting, it was getting towards the end of the race. Mika had a big lead, 40 seconds or something like that. And it was you know, just coming up to the beginning of the last lap. And I'd stood up ready to head straight down to the paddock. And then I heard an engine go past the start-finish straight, which is, you know, as you know, just outside, the, adjacent to the media media center. And there was a very, very sick-sounding engine, you know, in among all these high, the high-pitched V10s. There was something that came past, just gurgling and a very nasty, horrible, low-pitched sound. And I looked, I thought, oh, who's that? And I looked out the window, and of course it was uh, Mika. Um, so the you know the race leader and he stopped soon after. So yeah, big drama, ninety fifty ninth minute, the eleventh hour sort of thing. Yeah, crushing, crushing for Mika really, and we'll get into it in lots of detail later on. Matt, have we left anything on the table for you to pick for the traditional opening question? It'd be a lie if I said it was the first thing that came into mind because that's a very obvious <laughs> first thing for this race. But Alonso beating the Benettons. Is, is the second thing in my head for this one, one of those very early signs of just how special Alonso was going to be and how bad Benetton had got very quickly at the start of 2001. Yeah, that was that. Benetton was absolutely dreadful, and we'll come back to that as well. Before we get going, remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com or you can leave us a five-star podcast review on Apple Podcasts and submit a question there too. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus exclusive bonus content between series, then sign up to the Race Members Club to get a range of special benefits. Check out the-race.com forward slash members club to find out more. The big talking point in F1 heading into this weekend back in 2001 was the return of electronic driver aids for the first time since they were banned at the end of 1993. Traction control, launch control and automatic gears were once again legal, primarily because the FIA felt it was becoming too difficult to police what the teams were doing. McLaren boss Ron Dennis addressed this aspect of uh, the unban, saying racing purists criticise this move, but it's far more important for F1 to get rid of the suspicion that surrounded this. So Mark, under those circumstances, was it the right thing to do to legalise these gizmos or should the FIA have just worked harder and spent more of its own money on trying to clamp down on what it was believed some teams were doing? I think at the time it was the correct practical decision and while they worked away at um, a longer term one, which eventually would come with a standardised ECU, 
but it's actually a much smaller deal than was being made of it. It was, it, yeah, it's it's nice to have the drivers control the traction and, and, and to know that that's what they're doing, but that hadn't really been the differentiating factor between who's quick or slow for about 30 years. Any a, a, Anybody at that level could do it. It was relatively easy. It Maybe not in a wet, but, you know, the, the absolute fundamental it had once been in the day of Fangio, so the absolutely fundamental key to who was quick and who wasn't. But by the time you got big downforce and big tyres, it wasn't any big test of driver ability, not at this level. The difficult bit was how much speed could be taken into the corner on in the corner entry. And this had nothing to do with that. So in order to get rid of the suspicion that some were cheating, the FIA just took the rule away um, because the policing methods weren't up to detecting the difference between traction control and torque map mapping where the traction control reacts to the onset of wheel spin whereas the torque mapping was just reducing torque just before it sensed the wheels were about to spin and you're talking of a difference of a you know a hundredth of a second or something so it was a huge fuss about nearly nothing that had some traditionalists up in arms but only because they hadn't grasped what had been happening for years it really wasn't a big deal <laughs> in a moment we'll come to one very high profile supporter of drive raids returning but first, let's tackle what some of the dissenters thought of this rule change. Jean Lacey called it a disaster that would destroy the show, adding that the sound of traction control kills your brain and sounds awful. He's certainly right that they sounded terrible. He reckoned his grandmother could drive an F1 car without a problem now. Giancarlo Fisichella said F1 was better without the driver aids, which he felt made the car more important than the driver. But like Ron Dennis said... He added, if some teams were cheating before with these systems, it's better that we're all equal. Eddie Irvine wasn't shy about his feelings. He said, I think it's totally wrong for Formula One. It's good for me because I get paid the same amount and I don't have to work as hard. But you need about the same amount of skill as walking into a room and turning on the lights. The technicians put in the effort. They fiddle with their numbers. I just press the throttle. Matt, from more of a perhaps fan perspective back then, how did you feel about driver aids being legalised? Were you what Mark described earlier as a purist who was up in arms? I think the main thing at, the, at that time was I just felt it was embarrassing for F1 to have to go, we just can't control this, so whatever, just get on with it because we can't we can't detect them, we can't police it. It just it seemed like a failure of, of officiating as much as anything else. And I think also it was it was only eight years since they'd been banned before, which is relatively recent. And the noise around them being banned, along with active suspension and all the other gizmos in '93, was this is making it too easy for the drivers. So they they were they were kind of made to be a big bad spooky thing. All the drivers saying this is so easy, we can now just put our foot flat down and not lift it for the entire lap was that was how they were kind of portraying this change. So it, it did come across it came across very negatively, even if I think at that point. I was a couple of years into doing bits and bobs of freelance. And I think even I noticed at that point that most people were running some kind of traction control substitute and pit stops were a little bit curious with pit limiters coming on and off and that sort of thing. You know, Jordan's famous trick in 99 was was around the kind of false traction control. So, yeah, I didn't think it was going to be game changing, but I did think it was massively embarrassing because all the drivers were slating it and it was allowing something that they just said we can't police and we took it away eight years ago because it was terrible. You've got to have it back. I think it's perhaps telling that all those drivers who were uh, so far against it and said it made their lives so easy, none of them became dominant forces in F1 when it all came back. So we've already had a Lacey saying his grandmother could drive an F1 car and Irvine saying there's no skill involved. One of Irvine's bosses at Jaguar, Nicky Lauda, claimed F1 cars were so easy to drive, even a monkey could drive one. 
Michael Schumacher, of all people, took issue with that, saying, we must be 22 very good monkeys in the cars now. Maybe a monkey could drive the cars, but certainly not as fast. Schumacher was the driver most vocal in favour of driver aids returning. He said, I am in favour of it. We can go faster with it and drive more on the limit. It gives us more freedom to drive a bit faster. The ability to take the car permanently to the limit is what makes a good driver. He also cited the, the very apt example of Williams teammates Nigel Mansell and Ricardo Patrese in 1991 and 92. They were pretty evenly matched for much of their first season together. Then when driver aids were added to the Williams FW14B for 1992, Mansell destroyed Patrese. And Schumacher said, this is because you had to go more to reach the limit of the car. Mark, does, does that give us a glimpse into how Schumacher's brain was wired up differently from a lot of his rivals? Yeah, it shows that he properly understood the dynamics and where there was speed to be found from himself. Because in that search, which he'd conducted more intensely and scientifically than any driver before, from the moment he arrived, he, he found without any question which were the differentiating parts of the corner. And you can hear many of his rivals hadn't worked that out. And for sure, traction control made driving the car physically easier, but there was a key to being fast with traction control, and Schumacher had already worked this out as well. His speed came from taking an outrageous degree of speed into the corner and then having the fine hold feel to, to sit on the edge immediately, then make no further input until it was stabilised sort of around about the apex. And conventionally, that would make you later on the power and slower on the exit, so it was sort of fast in, slow out. But he managed to be fast in and fast out because he could manipulate the throttle in that awkward phase of transition because driving with traction control meant you could just put your foot on the floor, yes, for, and some imagines that's, that they'd all be able to now drive like Michael and fast in and fast out, but they absolutely could not. Traction control opened up an area advantage for him because now the car would be at its quickest with an optimum amount of traction control, not full traction control. That made it, full traction control made it easy, but that, was, that wasn't the quickest way. So the, the, now the art became about finding what the optimum was, and that's where he had a big advantage over his rivals, a much bigger advantage on the exit of the corner than he had um, before, the, before it was reintroduced. Um, so initially, drivers were using full traction control, feeling it was easier to drive and assuming that was the car at its quickest, and it, but it wasn't. It could actually go quicker with less traction control. And Michael was immediately turning the traction control down, having it less stable and therefore faster. I remember Gary Anderson telling us that was the big difference between Sato and Fissy Keller in 2002, was that Sato just wanted full traction control, boot the throttle, and couldn't work out why he wasn't as quick as Fissy, who was uh, a bit more finessed, shall we say. But the F1 paddock arrived in Spain off the back of Ralph Schumacher taking the first victory for the Williams-BMW partnership and Williams's first win since 1997 with you-know-who. It sparked all kinds of talk of if this meant Williams could challenge Ferrari and McLaren for the championship, although everyone at Williams was playing their chances down. Ralph said, we are not title contenders yet. We always thought we'd be able to win a race, but we are not consistent enough on every circuit. Patrick Head praised BMW for being in such a strong position so early in their involvement in F1 that he said the aim was to be championship contenders in 2002. And BMW boss Mario Tyson added, I wouldn't object to more wins, but I think at the moment we are not ready really for the championship. A top team has to be able to deliver 
as to be able to deal with every situation. I think it takes a bit more time and we are happy to save this goal for next season. Ferrari's Ross Braun wasn't expecting a Williams title challenge either, saying they are not going to be consistent enough over the season. Matt, given that Juan Pablo Montoya could have won in Brazil, and Ralph did win at Imola early in 2001, was Williams in a stronger position earlier, early in this season than perhaps they were letting on? I don't think so, but it but the Imola one was really interesting. You could sort of put Brazil down to a little bit of crazy improvisational Montoya magic because that, that performance just seemed like a, even at the time, felt like a, a sort of one-off great drive from a rookie on the circuit that suited him just throwing caution to the wind. But the Imola thing, when Ralph took the lead, he came from, I think, third on the grid into the lead at the first corner. And you kept expecting during that race to, for the McLarens to, I think it was Annie Coulthard running later on, to catch up and put under pressure. But it just never happened. You just controlled the race really dominantly. And that just seemed like a sign that, yeah, Williams was in was in the position it had been in five years earlier um, again suddenly. But no, at the time, there was still a suspicion that it was getting a lot of benefit from the monster BMW engine. And there were going to be some circuits where it couldn't just hide behind that. And it was a tyre war as well. And there wasn't really enough evidence that Michelin was really a, a season-long consistent um, opponent to Bridgestone in the same way as... Um, as everyone kind of tipping Williams for a title was hoping. But yeah, I can definitely remember at the time the Ralph winner Emila was a real sign of actually this isn't just a kind of throwing it into the lead with a monster start and a great engine then just holding on under pressure. This is probably controlling a Grand Prix from the front. I was at that Imola race, uh, sat on the banks at, at Tosa. And uh, yeah, I, I thought it was quite cool to witness the renaissance of, of Williams. But let's move on to some F1 politics next, as it was around this time in 2001 that the FIA infamously rubber-stamped an agreement for F1's commercial rights to be handed over to Bernie Ecclestone's company, Sleck, which he co-owned with German media companies Kirch and EMTV for 100 years. This deal came about following pressure from the European Commission that wanted to see a separation of F1's commercial and sporting activities, and it was also unhappy with how close it felt Ecclestone was to the FIA side of things. At the time this deal was done, the FIA and Eccleston were in the middle of a deal that ran from 1995 to 2010, so the 100-year agreement would only kick in in 2011. The 100-year deal cost $313.6 million, which was the original price of $300 million agreed in 2000, plus interest, and it had taken Bernie a while to get the funds in place from his partners. In his book, former FIA president Max Mosley said that negotiating with Bernie was difficult, partly because, in Max's words, what the FIA actually owned in F1 was nebulous. Max added, Bernie always says we managed to sell him his own business and he only gave us the money for a quiet life. And that was a claim Max called debatable. Max also said the motivation for the deal was because back in 2001, Formula One looked fragile. It was difficult to predict what, if anything, the championship would consist of in the future. And he said the decision was easy at the time, even if it might not have been so easy if it had been known how much F1 would survive and prosper in the years that followed. So, Mark, what did you what did you make of all this? It was a big off track story. And for for the years before Bernie Eccleston was finally moved aside by Liberty Media, we heard about this 100 year agreement quite a lot, didn't we? We did. Um, and in hindsight, we could see it was about the control of the championship's future to keep it away from um, what Max perceived as predator automotive manufacturers. 
And I think his aim w was correct in that. Not that they, the manufacturers were some evil force, but the, 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 if you'd put the championship in their control, which ultimately it may have done, they, they, they may have bought the commercial rights, um, it, may, it would make the sport very much less robust because they'd have to look after their own interests first. Um, but at the time, it just seemed like an outrageous way of Max and Bernie stitching up the commercial gains of the sport in perpetuity. But over time, I've come to think that it had the benefit of keeping those automotive manufacturers under control while giving the FIA the funding it needed to establish some very worthwhile initiatives. And very often with Max and Bernie, you could see their ultimate aims were right and, and, and you could see what they were trying to do, but that the way they went about getting there wasn't always ethical. But maybe they wouldn't have been able to reach those aims by plain clean. I, I don't know. But they, they weren't quite benevolent dictators in how they ran the sport, but they were probably less malevolent than their reputation and then than what some of the alternatives might have been. It's an interesting case of, of how hindsight can make a difference. Throughout researching stuff for Bring Back V10s, throughout this era, there are constantly stories cropping up of manufacturers trying to gain more control of F1 or set up their own series. I've, I've always been in the camp that it would be disastrous to have the manufacturers fully in control. You can't trust them. You don't know how long they're going to stick around for because the moment they have a change at board level and or they're not winning, someone's going to pull the plug and whatever sport they're then in control of could be in big trouble. But let's talk about the manufacturers because this 100-year deal didn't sit well with the European manufacturers that were in F1 at the time. Ford, Fiat, Mercedes, BMW and Renault made threats, of course, of creating a breakaway series as they were not happy about F1's commercial rights being handed over for a century. Some of the manufacturers were adamant that they would set up their own series when the Concorde Agreement was up at the end of 2007 as they wanted more of a say in how the championship was run. Jaguar boss Bobby Rahal, that's another Jaguar boss, we've already mentioned Nicky Lauda, speaking on behalf of his team's owner Ford, said... Bernie has made a lot of people in Formula One very wealthy, including himself, but now is the time to be a lot more transparent about the way he conducts his business. This is not posturing, we want action. But Bernie said the manufacturers had their chance to get involved, but they missed the boat and misjudged what was going to happen. And he said they'd be a little silly if they tried to set up their own series. Mosley's book backs up Bernie's claim about the manufacturers missing their chance, as they were invited to make an offer as well, but Mosley said they never produced anything concrete, even when he went back to them in late 2000 to say the door was still open to them because Bernie hadn't got his funding in place yet. So Matt, Mark and I have already had our say on this, really. Where do you stand on your manufacturers? Could they have been trusted if they'd been given more power in F1, or could whatever they wanted to set up themselves have gone ahead and, and prospered? Well, I think the simple answer to this is, is to look ahead 10 years and see how few of them are actually still about. Um, whether if they'd owned the championship, if they'd been more inclined to stay to the financial crisis and that sort of thing is a, is a moot point, but I can't see it. And it's, it's like you said, for manufacturers, motorsport is really a luxury, no matter how seriously F1 and motorsport want to take themselves. If your business is building road cars and, and road machinery, and that is what your workforce is there for, then F1 is an add-on. And there's nothing immoral about having that stance, really. But at the same time, as, as well as manufacturers coming in and out, manufacturers getting on with each other and collaborating isn't isn't necessarily a guarantee of success either. You know, you can't imagine in this era um, 
the standard ECU being adopted between the manufacturers that were around at the time. So no, I, it was it was a bad idea at the time, but it only seemed like a good idea because this dictatorship between Max and Bernie looked so much more evil. So it was a kind of a battle between evil and a terrible idea, really. Let's move away from politics and into the driver market because we had changes to the lineup for the Spanish Grand Prix. Luciano Berti had found out Jaguar had no intention of keeping him for 2002, so he decided to jump ship to Prost immediately. Jaguar didn't seem too upset by this, immediately promoting Pedro De La Rosa to a race seat alongside Eddie Irvine. Berti said he believed he made the right decision, saying he had nothing against Jaguar, but the best thing for him was to go somewhere that he could see a future, which is a bit awkward considering how much longer Prost existed as an F1 team. De La Rosa perhaps summed it up best by saying the changes were better for everyone, although he added that he wished his first race wasn't in his home country, as it would mean a lot of expectation. But he called uh, for his debut to be taken in the context of the team's capabilities at this stage in our development, saying Jaguar was in transition and using 2001 as a baseline to develop a better car for 2002. Mark, Bertie was a highly rated talent in the junior ranks with Jackie Stewart's guidance but he never raced in f1 again after his big crash for prost at the belgian grand prix later this season given prost was in plenty of its own turmoil during 2001 was bertie perhaps a little trigger happy to jump ship as soon as he found out he was losing his drive for the following season i think there was a lot more going on behind the scenes in terms of the money de la rosa's sponsors could bring and louder who is sort of sort of co-running the team with Bobby Rail, believing the more experienced De La Rosa could give better direction and, and, and push Eddie Irvin. Lauda wasn't convinced about Eddie Irvin at that point. And typical Lauda, he wanted it to happen now. If it was better, we can do it now rather than next year, so let's do it. So I'm sure there were discussions between Lauda and his own his old friend, Alan Prost, as well as Prost's former manager, Julian Jacobi, who not coincidentally was also De La Rosa's manager. <laughs> so I don't actually think Bertie had much say in it. I think it just happened and he had to come up with a reason for public consumption. Yeah, there was a, there was a brilliant uh, column at the time written by Matt Bishop uh, when he was back at the Haymarket titles all about uh, how Jaguar were unimpressed with Irvine and everything else that was going on behind the scenes. So that, that, yeah, there was, there was quite a lot to this. But as we've hinted there, things weren't exactly rosy at Prost in 2001. But the team was in the news around this time as there were rumours of the one and only Pedro Diniz potentially trying to take the team over. Diniz had taken a stake in Prost at the end of 2000 when he decided to stop racing in F1 and it was believed that the hiring of Bertie was going to be linked to the team's plans to attract more funding from Brazil. Nothing ever came of this unfortunately and when Diniz was asked about his association with Prost recently on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, he said Prost was a good business opportunity. Then it turned out it was not so good. The team was in a lot of difficulties and it was challenging, so it didn't really turn out very well. Matt, this is a question that I feel is right up your street. How much did F1 miss out on having a Diniz F1 team? What would that have been like? I, th I feel like me and Ed Straw missed out on something to talk about for years and years with Pedro Diniz uh, <laughs> having an F1 team. Thing is, though, as much as Pedro Diniz was a, a laughable racing driver, less so in the in the, like, the last three quarters of, of his F1 career, I think he might have done a better job of this than Alain Prost, to be honest, given how what a state the team got into with Prost. And you know, for Diniz to be as round, around as much money as he was to fund his own F1 career to that uh, that degree 
he obviously had the business links to make some things happen. It turns out he's quite good at farming now as well in his uh, in his post racing career. Um, when he talks about it being a good business opportunity, I can imagine the business he had in mind was owning the team for a bit, selling it on to somebody for some more money, probably a manufacturer. But the fact that hmm. Denis looked at Prost and thought, no way, that is too much of a state, kind of says all you need to know about Prost rather than much about Denis. Yeah, I think that I think that fits. Uh, sticking with this Bertie Delarosa driver shuffle, and I should say that the man who lost out at Prost was Gaston Mazzucani. And there was a fun bit I found where uh, Prost were claiming that replacing Mazzucani with Bertie would help them in South America, which seemed to overlook that Mazzucani was from Argentina. Uh, but Jaguar's fortunes, weren't looking great in their second season in F1, as we've hinted at. Eddie Irvine accepted that unless the teams in front of us get it wrong, we're just chasing the distant chance of a point, adding we're still too slow and it is pretty difficult to do well. Bobby Rahal said team management were brutally aware of the challenge the team faces, and both he and Irvine said hopes were being pinned on a major aerodynamic upgrade that was in the works. We get asked a lot when we're going to do an episode on Jaguar, and Prost for that matter, and we'll take care of one of those later in this series. But Irvine gave some interesting insight into what was going on behind the scenes at Jaguar when he spoke to Steve Ryder for Sky's Legends of F1 series. So let's hear what he had to say. The thing, what was amazing was when you came from Ferrari, it showed me how good Jean Todd was because the politics he had to deal with were 10 times the politics that the Ford Motor Company had and he coped with it. Like, John Dodd is a complete genius, he really is. And uh, there was no one, no one at that level in, in Jaguar, and it's such a shame, because it was amazing. It was amazing Formula One, it was yeah. amazing for Jaguar, but it all fell apart. Yeah. And uh, they just had, they just tried new manager after new manager, and they just never got anyone of the right quality. That, and whoever came in didn't have the 100% backing of the whole organization. Yeah. But the actual people in the team were actually good. The mechanics were very good, and the guys, the whole team was good. It was just anyone that had a manager's badge was not good enough. Ford didn't even know what Formula One was, didn't care. Great idea, horribly executed. Yeah. Mark, interesting stuff from Irvine there, although there were plenty of people at Jaguar who didn't have many kind words to say about him either. How badly was it going for Jaguar in early 2001? It was just, as Eddie says, very bad management, and uh, that had been apparent right from the start of the, the Jaguar from project at the start of 2000. It was the wrong culture, the lack of understanding. And I'm not talking about rail and louder here. I'm talking about Detroit management from automotive. Um, the arrogance of thinking because they'd been successful in the corporate world, they'd be performers in F1 without have, having any grounding and not realizing how it works. So not good at all long term in terms of prospects. Um, Eddie often didn't say things with um, with grace and could get people's backs up. But about this, he's absolutely right. Yeah, I think earlier in this series, Gary Anderson said that Eddie Irvine joining Stewart might have been a better fit than Eddie Irvine joining Jaguar. Moving on, unfortunately, around this time in 2001, we got the news that XF1 driver Michele Alboreto was killed in a testing accident in an Audi sports car in preparation for the Le Mans 24 hours. That took place at the Lausitz ring on its big test circuit. Alboreto was a five-time race winner in F1, finishing second in the championship to Alain Prost in 1985 with Ferrari. And Ferrari president Luca di Montezemolo led the tributes to the Italian saying he played an important role in the history of Ferrari and praised him for his intelligence, 
and the way he tackled dealing with problems when developing a car. Now, Mark, we rarely talk about Alberto on the show, mainly because by the time the V10 era started, his best years were certainly behind him. How good do you think he was in his prime? And his prime is terrific. Is in his performance at the 85 Monaco Grand Prix was worthy of any of the greats. He could have won it twice, but for misfortune, it was a mind-blown drive. Um, he wasn't always at that absolute genius level, but in the right circumstances, he could certainly have been a world champion. He could certainly have put that program to get together and, and led the, the 84 championship for um, much of the first half of the season. Very classy driver, very sensitive to the car in the pre telemetry age that was sort of gold dust really um and, and quick very quick and um he had a bit of an indian summer later on with with arrows and he was still very very quick then and there was um alan jenkins was a big fan of his at the time was at arrows and he said there was a test at um silverstone where alberito was uh, doing the morning session and then alex caffey the afternoon and the, the morning session went quite smoothly and then caffey got in the car and shunted it on the on the first lap and um, came back and said the 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 gear box is the wrong way around it, 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 the, the 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 gate was the wrong way around so when he when he was changing up what he thought was changing up he was changing down and it just locked the wheels and it, and uh, I said really and he asked Michaeli he said is that right is it, is it the wrong way he said oh yeah I forgot to mention it <laughs> so he just worked that out straight away and had driven all all morning like that and then forgot just got used to it and forgot to mention it <laughs> <laughs> it was a different time. Let's uh, let's just say that. But let's move back to F1 in 2001. Jensen Button was capturing plenty of media attention before and after the Spanish Grand Prix, with a lot of fuss being made about a shoulder injury he'd picked up, which wasn't being helped by Benetton not running power steering on its 2001 car. Button's manager, David Robertson, created some headlines when he said Button could miss a race if that's what's needed to recover. Although Robertson later claimed the British newspapers twisted things round in a way that made it sound worse and all out of proportion. They would never do that. The injury itself was certainly real, though, with Button admitting he'd picked up a tweak in Malaysia earlier in the season. He said it hasn't been right since, but I'm not sure what caused it. It's not an excuse for the lap times, but it doesn't make life easy. Button was taking painkillers and wearing a shoulder support to ease the pain, which wasn't helped by how hideously uncompetitive the Benetton was at this stage of the season. He qualified on the back row in Spain as both he and teammate Giancarlo Fisichella were, as Matt mentioned earlier, outqualified and outraced by the Minardi of a Spanish rookie named Fernando Alonso. So Matt, with, with how badly things were going for Button at Benetton already, could he actually have perhaps done with a one or two race break just to get him out of that horrible car? I don't think it would have made any difference. It just been an absolute nightmare to come back to. And also, no one would have noticed he wasn't there, probably, because the results and performance were so bad at the time. It, it's um, this, it's a really sad one to, to look at now, after how exciting his first year was. This second year really could have been a career-ender for him. And the fact that you, you bring up the fact that the British press were seen as twisting stuff... I think that was quite a big part of it. There were, you know, he'd come out of nowhere in mainstream media terms, had this incredible first year at Williams with no expectation whatsoever, just absolutely thriving, become a bit of a tabloid darling. And now he was in a, in a terrible car that he wasn't driving very well and it was all going downhill so, so quickly. And this just feels like a kind of a, a classic overstated 
90s 2000s british tabloid storyline to shout about for a while that was not helpful but no if he could have taken eight races off that season and come back and still finish 20th in the ninth race <laughs> Paul jensen he uh he spoke about how miserable 2001 was in his book uh where he wrote the car was a total dog to drive its two biggest flaws were that it was slow really slow and fissy drove it better than me no getting around that fact but Jensen also gave a lot of insight into how he was being treated by his new team boss, Flavio Briatore, who was back in charge at Benetton ahead of the team being fully taken over by Renault for 2002. Button said in his book, At first, Flavio was great company. However, it soon became apparent that he expected me to win races, which in that car was an impossibility. And when I didn't win races, he started being no fun. He was especially forthright with the media, especially when you'd had a poor race which was pretty much every race that season. I read some of his comments that year and thought they were petulant, childish and unnecessary. And worse than that, they really got to me. Flavio's hostility shook me up. Nothing on track scared me, but Flavio gave me the screaming heebie-jeebies. My inability to get to grips with it, at least at first, put me in a very dark place. I was scared of not performing, which meant that I didn't perform, which made me even more scared of not performing. I was thinking I would never pull out of the slump. Button also wrote that being beaten by Alonso's Minardi that weekend was humiliating. But Mark, let, let's move past Flavio's expectation that anyone should win races in that 2001 Benetton. What did you make specifically of the way Briatore was handling Button during this difficult time? It made him look a bit one-dimensional, not the great manager he, he could be. It, it, you know, the the whole thing about Jensen's first year was a supreme confidence in his own ability he carried, and that sort of fed on itself. And then he arrives at a car that just is completely unsuited to his style of driving. And in that in that situation, uh, you know, you you know that the driver can do good stuff because you've already seen it. He really needs to have his confidence built back up while they sort out a car that that works for him. You, 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 the last thing you need to be doing is destroying the confidence because that's uh, giving you no chance to access what you already know is there. So he managed the team wonderfully well. If you, you talk to anybody that that, that worked at um, Benetton Renault at that time, and said he was the most fantastic manager, and he just basically let people you put put his trusted lieutenants in charge and let them do the job and very little interference um but if he took against the driver he could be horribly counterproductive alex verts uh, before jensen had experienced it and yano truly would afterwards um but um if you talk to fernando alonso or mark weber they would just tell you he was, he was fantastic because he was for them so yeah there was just that blind spot if he, if he took against a driver um it really he made it worse and it's just definitely a, a blind spot in his managerial capabilities let's go on with the track action then and while michael schumacher took pole for ferrari the interesting story from qualifying was mick hakkinen getting onto the front row after turning his traction control off hakkinen said that by turning it off he could fix a couple of parts of the lap where he had understeer by playing with the throttle although he also admitted to losing some time in turn five when he lost the rear end. Schumacher said he could see how running without traction control for a qualifying lap might be an advantage, but he wouldn't expect that to be the case over a race distance. So Matt, was this revelation from Hakkinen perhaps a sign that driver aids were overrated? It was a great headline, wasn't it? In a, in a, yeah. a point of everyone slating them. Um, 
it, like we were discussing earlier, it wasn't as simple as an on-off switch that took away all your wheel spin and, and let you just drive flat out the, enti- the entire lap. There was more nuance to it. You could use them in degrees. Um, and, and some kind of balance of the driver aids helping, but the driver's own inputs being part of it when necessary was, was ideal. I think that's all hacking and saying here. Um, but also I need to remember that, you know, we, this was 2001. What seemed very high tech at the time probably really, really wasn't and was relatively primitive. And thinking about how in modern F1, how the settings are all so highly tuned and how many adjustments on the steering wheel a driver will make to make a hybrid system work the right way for them, I can imagine there was a lot less variation and kind of tunability possible with traction control at, at this point. So traction control was probably in, in a relatively basic form compared to the potential it would have had, say, 10, 15 years on. And I think Hakkinen's line just shows that it wasn't as as simple a, a kind of evil saviour of the talentless driver as it, as it was being presented. What followed on race day was a classic Schumacher-Hakkinen battle, the likes we'd not seen for a few months since 2000 when they'd been doing it all the time. They streaked away from everybody with Hakkinen stopping later during both pit stop phases and emerging from his second stop having taken the lead. Shortly after this, Schumacher slowed dramatically with a vibration, which Ferrari couldn't trace the cause of, but they decided not to bring him in for another set of tyres and just focused on nursing the car home. There were some fears that it could be a suspension problem as that had put Rubens Barrichello out of the race in the other Ferrari. That meant Hakkinen cleared off into the distance, starting that final lap, as Mark mentioned earlier, with a 42-second lead. But even that wasn't enough when his clutch failed and his car ground to a flaming halt halfway round the lap. Hakkinen called it a catastrophic moment, as he was on course for his fourth win in a row at Barcelona and was hoping to kickstart his 2001 season. And he said he would need to get a punch bag in the motorhome to let out his frustration. Schumacher went up to Hakkinen after the race to apologise for what had happened to him. In an article for the McLaren website in 2015, Hakkinen said Schumacher told him he could take no joy in winning a race like that. And Mika added, it was a kind gesture, but I was inconsolable. Mark, let's let's focus on the part of the race before these two great drivers had any car problems. How good was this battle up until the second pit stops when Mika finally comes out in the lead in what really was an old school refueling flat out race? Yeah, it was shaping up beautifully up until that point, until the point where Michael had to um, back off. And uh, I think... It could have gone either way, but Hakkinen was uh, pounding in the laps around the around the, the stop, so he he looked really on it and really up for it, and it was going to be fascinating to see how it played out. Uh, yeah, it was all set to be one of those um, classic duels between that we, we'd seen so many times before. Now, also in that McLaren website article, Hakkinen talked about his struggles in two thousand and one in general. He said it was a very frustrating year, adding, I began to feel imprisoned, suffocated by bad fortune. I found it difficult to keep my cool. Sometimes I felt like screaming. Perhaps I began to close myself off. People in the press wrote that I looked. it looked as though I was no longer trying, that I'd given up. I had not given up at all, of course, but the results still refused to come. And Mark, Mika did bag a couple of wins later in the year at Silverstone and, and Indy. But do you think a win this early in the year would have made any difference to how the rest of his season played out? I think Mika was in a difficult place mentally. Um, and I think it had started with his um, his accident 
uh, in, in Melbourne. Um, and I, I always, because I mean, that he, he, although he wasn't hurt there, it was a scary experience for someone who always been killed a few a few years before, because um, it was from inside it was looking like it was, um, you know, it was going to repeat. And I always wonder what part that um, Spain retirement played in his retirement decision, because he was in a negative frame of mind coming in. And I think I wonder if that might have just lifted him enough, because if he'd won there, he might have felt he had a tilt at the title. But after this, there, there really wasn't, um, you know, that the, the, the Michael and Ferrari were really getting, getting a good run. Um, I wonder, with a chance of fighting for the title, those things that were, those questions in his mind, those troubling things that were in his mind, I wonder if he could have kept them at bay um, and maybe he was less able to do so once those press prospects were, were gone it took i think it took a lot more out of mika uh, fighting for a, a title and i think he he referenced it once in 2000 saying how horrible at 99 had been and and, and that you know he he really didn't want to have to to put himself through that again i think it took a, a lot of mental strain um and that's where michael was so strong um over so many years so you had all that Retirement of Barcelona just seemed like a routine, dramatic moment, it just a standard racing drama. I think it may have had more significance than that. McLaren had more drama on its plate earlier in the afternoon as before the formation lap, David Coulthard's car had stalled. It later emerged that Coulthard had triggered a glitch in the launch control system by not pulling away with 100% throttle applied. But straight after the race, Ron Dennis was interviewed by ITV and suggested Coulthard had had a bit of brain fade. Coulthard took that badly, as you might expect, and responded saying that Ron had suffered brain fade by making that comment without speaking to DC or his engineer first. Adrian Newey defended Coulthard, saying it was unfair to blame him and that it was a situation McLaren hadn't properly rehearsed, but the system probably should have coped with it. Dennis later offered a clarification in a team statement, saying... Based on an initial analysis, we felt that David was responsible for stalling on the dummy grid, but closer scrutiny confirmed that a glitch in the software was at fault. Coulthard wrote in his book that Ron did apologise to him in person, and it's perhaps telling that DC only briefly references what I think a lot of us remember as quite a famous public falling out between him and Ron, so I don't think it left much of a scar. Coulthard then had to start the race from the back, where he got caught up in a first lap collision, broke his front wing, then raced his way back to fifth after pitting for repairs at the end of lap one. So Matt, is there any way we can have some sympathy for Ron Dennis here, or is this just terrible judgment on his part? I'm just trying to think of any circumstance which I could feel sympathy for Ron Dennis, and I'm, I'm really, really it's struggling. It's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's no, no, it's not. I mean, okay, you've got to respect everything he achieved, but wow, the guy had a ta has a talent for an infuriating people, especially especially unfavoured drivers in his own team. Um, no, this this was really badly handled. I, I rewatched the first part of the 2001 season before this podcast, and... Um, I, one of the things that really stuck out to me was in Brazil when Coulthard won and Ron was interviewed on the pit wall straight afterwards. Okay, he, maybe he didn't want TV there at that moment, but his response was was so graceless about the victory. And, it, you know, that was a spectacular win. DC was amazing in the way in that race. Um, 
But Ron's attitude around it was just that it, it was coming across like McLaren had a God-given right to always be winning races with the best drivers, and he couldn't couldn't get into his head that Ferrari was now in control and McLaren was 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 up against it. And you know, he he hadn't been there's lots of times over Coulthard's time at McLaren when Ron wasn't that positive about him publicly. It's amazing that they had such a long relationship, considering. So no, this was a hundred percent poor judgment and you can't imagine Ron having been like that had Hakkinen stilled on the grid. No, I thought that as well. Uh, but Hakkinen's late retirement meant the podium was completed by Montoya's Williams and Jacques Villeneuve's BAR. This was Montoya's first finish in F1 and he'd come through to second from a disappointing 12th on the grid without using traction control as Williams didn't think they could trust the new system. Montoya said he wasn't expecting to be on a podium in Spain because he'd found the Williams tricky to drive and he felt the McLarens and Ferraris were in a different league. He added, we never really got the car handling the way I wanted. It was sliding a lot. He also said that he backed off after teammate Ralph Schumacher spun out of the race, and Ralph was only 15 seconds off the lead when he said something quite strange happened to put him in the gravel after 20 laps. Mark, given all we'd seen from Montoya over those early races in F1 and a reputation he came in with, was this a bit of an underwhelming way for him to get his first podium? Yeah, I suppose so. It's nothing like as exciting as Brazil. Um, but it was a result on the board, you know. I, I think that's how they probably looked at it. It was a platform to build on. It took the pressure off him a little bit, um, you know, because if he'd got to the that that stage with still without a finish, it would have just gradually started ratcheting up. But um Montoya was like this, as it turned out, even when he was more experienced, with very high highs and, and some low dips. And he, he could just uh, just not get on with a car all weekend and just sort of say, well, it's, it's the car's fault. You know, um, I, I don't care. Uh, it's just wrong. <laughs> and that, that would be that weekend written off. And so, yeah, it was um, it was at least a, at least a foundation, let's say. In, in terms of a result, and uh, there was a lot of great stuff to come. Yeah, agreed. Now, interestingly, earlier in the weekend, Coulthard had had a bit to say about Montoya, believing that the Colombian's arrival in F1 was being sensationalised by the media. DC, who, it must be said, refers to Montoya in his book as the chubby fella, more than once, uh, more than once he says that in the book, uh, DC said in Spain, he has F1 testing experience, European racetrack experience, and he went off to America. I think the press try to be sensational about him. I'm not taking anything away from him, but you've got to keep it real. Now, Matt, I don't know about you, but I'd been aboard the Montoya hype train for a while by by this point. Was DC right that maybe some of us were getting a bit overexcited or did Montoya warrant the kind of buzz he was generating in early 2001? Uh, DC was 100% absolutely wrong in every way at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, you you could criticize Montoya for being unrefined and all over the place, but you you couldn't you couldn't underplay the excitement around him. Now I, I'd uh, I've been firmly aboard the Montoya hype train since a Silverstone Formula Three Thousand qualifying session. That I was I was spectating it, and just the body language of the car was so much more aggressive than anybody else. Not just in the cornering, but how he was like massively backing up the pack to get himself clear of traffic, which was outrageous the way he was doing it. But that was Montoya, and. He made quite heavy weather of winning the Formula 3000 title in the end. Um, but his two seasons in what was at that point called Champ Car, briefly, um, were fantastic. To win the title um, in car at the first attempt in 99 against that stronger field as a, as a rookie with no oval experience since very low-level racing at the start of his career, 
that was that was a genuinely incredible feat. I would rate that as the best title won by a Ganassi driver in IndyCar, genuinely. Um, and I think in the in the Lola package in 2000, he was fantastic, even though the car kept breaking and, and certainly wasn't the best chassis on the grid anymore. So, yeah, even before he got to F1, there were loads of reasons to be so excited about Montoya. I've been an enormous Alex Zanardi fan and seen that go horribly wrong. And before that, I'd, I'd been a kart fan seeing Andretti's arrival go horribly wrong. So I was quite anxious to see if Montoya would translate. And, yeah, he's, he was qualifying way off Ralph at this point. But in every race, there was a sign of something special going on. Like, OK, he threw it off the road at the first corner in Melbourne, but he was out breaking two cars down the middle through a narrowing gap at the time. Um, he qualified, okay, he qualified a long way off Ralph pace-wise in Malaysia, but he learned the circuit in FP3 because his, his Friday barely happened, happened for him. And obviously there was Interlagos, and I can't remember him in detail, but I'm sure he had like one one good moment there in between being slower than Ralph and the car braking. But this was it. Every weekend there was a fiery thing to get excited about. And okay, he sort of ambled his way through to second in this race, but he still got second from 12th on the grid ahead of a lot of cars who qualified ahead of him. So... Yeah, yeah, you. I was I was very much aboard the hype train. I was convinced he was going to win three titles at least at this point. I was obviously going to be wrong about that. You could tell he was all over the place, but he was exciting, and you could not deny that he was worth being a bit sensational about. And there's a good little clip there for all the people to ask us when we're going to do bring back cart. Uh, so we've talked about it for a little bit there, and I'm certainly not complaining about that. If, if we're looking for something spectacular that Montoya did in this race, I think it was his start. He goes from twelfth to sort of sixth or seventh by the first corner but Montoya was on for a podium finish even if Hakkinen hadn't broken down so the main beneficiary here was Villeneuve who claimed BAR's first F1 podium in its 38th start. This came after a shambolic qualifying session for Villeneuve as on his first run he said his rear brakes were not attached properly and on his second run the car was running 10 kilos overweight so he started seventh but he felt the car was quick enough to be as high as fifth on the grid if he'd had a clean session. Villeneuve didn't use launch control at the start, but he got off the line okay. And it was actually down at turn one where he lost ground. He admitted that he braked too early and then woke up when Montoya swept past him, having started five places behind him. At the end of the race, Villeneuve said he wasn't sure if he was passing Hakkinen's stricken car for position, as he couldn't tell how many times McLaren had lapped him in the race. But fortunately, with Schumacher so far back, Villeneuve did have time to unlap himself and get around again to pass Hakkinen for that third place. Mark, a new F1 team taking its first podium in its 38th race is basically unthinkable now. Things were a bit different 20 years ago. Did this feel like a significant result for BAR or given the good fortune involved, would that have been overplaying it? Um, It seemed like progress was being made at this early stage of the 2001 season. And, um, but in hindsight, no, I mean, the, the, the team had hit a ceiling. It, it had come in in 99 as a, this all new entity, sort of buying out the, what had been the Tyrrell team. And it was all new and chaotic among a lot of hype. And it, it really didn't, it really underdelivered in that first season, but it made a big step up in 2000, which is when Honda came on board properly um, and they they put together a pretty solid 2000 season, you know, a lot of fourth places for Jack. And really, it needed you. You were looking for the 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 next step, and that next step never came. The, the, in this incarnation of the team, that 2000 season was um, the best it would be until 2004, uh, when they, when they 
did come up with a really good car. Um, so yeah, it was just really a, a false dawn, I think. And um, it, it, it was, it, it could have been, I think it was probably looked on at the time as, it's, yeah, this is evidence that the team's still going places, this result, but it wasn't really. No, I remember being very excited about it at the time, uh, ignoring all the context, really. But looking back at it now, it wasn't a sign of, of anything during that first iteration of BAR, which, of course, was Craig Pollock era. The timing of that first podium felt significant as well, because reports had surfaced in the British newspapers saying that British American Tobacco had called in investment bankers to analyse the feasibility of selling off a stake in the team. BAT put out a statement denying this, saying BAT wishes to emphasise its continuing commitment to BAR. The group has no current intention of reducing its equity interest in BAR, and any suggestion that BAT is considering a sell-off is inaccurate and mischievous. Team boss Craig Pollock referenced that speculation after the podium finish, saying, Whenever there are rumours, it's good to put them to bed with a result like this. Pollock also admitted BAR had revised its targets for the season in reaction to seeing how strong Ferrari, McLaren and Williams were. He said, We had a very bad start to the year, which was difficult to accept, but we know we have a lot of work to get up there with the big boys, and this is just the start. We are in our third year, and I don't think we can say we are a young team. We can't use excuses anymore. At the beginning of the year, we were thinking of finishing third or better in the championship, and having seen where Williams, McLaren and Ferrari are, it will be very difficult to get in there. Fourth or better would be more than acceptable. BAR had finished fifth in 2000, but tied on points with Benetton in fourth place. And in the end, they would slip to sixth in 2001. So Matt, lastly, ignoring how 2001 turned out for BAR, was this a rare dose of realism for the team, especially for Pollock to speak like this after such what could have been used as a landmark result. We actually heard Pollock saying, no, we're going to have to revise our goals because the big teams have moved away from us. Yeah, it's, it's quite refreshing, isn't it? I, I had no idea from memory that he reacted in that way. I was expecting the opposite. I do think by this time, well, I was going to say the hype had quietened down, but the the way Pollock uses the phrase or better in, in that quote is a little bit ominous. You know, the, the noise before BAR came in was was offensively deafening about what they'd achieve at the outset. And then 99 was the, the kind of punishment they got for that hubris. But like Mark said, 2000 was great. I I. I returned to Jacques Villeneuve fandom in 2000. I think that was up there with 96 and 98 as a genuinely great season from him. Uh, I don't include 97 as a great Villeneuve season, sorry. Um, a debate for another But yeah, they, they were... Indeed. They, <laughs> they were they were an impressive team in 2000 and it did seem like they are on the cusp of something. And you could look at that season and, and think, okay, McLaren and Ferrari out of reach. Well, who's going to be third? BAR maybe? Williams in a, in a sort of state of flux? Jordan in there as well? Yeah, you could put them in that conversation. But Pollock saying we were thinking third or better at the start of the year. They were seeing that after 2000, they had a launch pad to attack McLaren and Ferrari. Now nah, that's like that's like old school start of the team BAR talk. But yeah, it's um, I think as well he he couldn't help but see how inherited this result was. I, th I think um, for both Montoya and Villeneuve, it was a very enjoyable podium to see. There were two of my favourite drivers up there, but. No one could say those were kind of massively well-earned results or particular performance high points for the drivers and teams involved. Well, if we were looking to end on a high with this episode, it doesn't get much higher than finishing up with a lucky podium for Villeneuve and BAR. 
So that's where we'll draw a line under Spain 2001. Thanks to Mark and to Matt for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you both on again very soon. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale episodes where you can ask us anything about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. You can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com or submit a question in a five-star podcast review on Apple Podcasts if you think we've earned it. For the second episode in a row, we're promising you the story of the 2004 Williams FW26 is coming next, where we'll revisit the car best known as the Walrus. Walrus.